Scripture for today is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Galatians 4, beginning at the first verse. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his father into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day, for the privilege that we have to receive your word, to hear the heart of the Apostle Paul, and to think as to how Galatians 4 connects into this matter of Advent. So we pray that you would use the word to apply spiritual help to us in our time of need. We come today, Lord, from various walks of life with lots of different challenges and issues, and we need the Word of God to speak to us today. So would you, Jesus, by your Spirit, do that? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Take your Bibles. Let's go over to Galatians chapter 4. That's our text today. And as you're turning there, I would imagine that your family or you as an individual have uh, traditions around the holiday like ours does. One of my favorite traditions is connected to the assembling of the tree and all of the ornaments. Now, my role in the assembly of the tree, I think arguably is the harder role, I have to wrestle the tree in the house, right? Don't break anything. Get it in the stand, needs to be straight, brings back bad memories as a kid one year when my dad couldn't get it straight, so he took fishing wire and a screw and he, and he put in the, don't walk over here, kids, you know, because the whole thing will go over, Christmas will be ruined. And um, so get all the lights on the tree, you know, and somehow it, it happens every year. The lights were all working when I bundled them up. I put them in the box and somehow there was a conspiracy in the last 11 months that those lights got together and said, I know what we'll do. We'll, we'll all burn out. And so we pull them out and it, there's never as many lights that were on when I put them in the box. As well, my fingers get all crinkly as, and, and prickly as I'm sticking those lights all around. So I have the harder job. And while I'm wrestling through this moment of my own personal sanctification, trying not to be angry, <laughs> my wife has another job where she takes out the box of Christmas ornaments. It's all nicely organized. Apparently, they even have boxes now specifically designed for Christmas ornaments. And they have those little divisions and all this. And she takes those ornaments out, and she kind of lines them up on a coffee table or on the sofa. Now, we used to do this for crowd control and behavior management, right? Because our kids always wanted to get in that box. And so we make them, you know, sit down and wait. And even still, we make them sit down and wait. And she lines all of those ornaments up. And she takes a piece of yellow notebook paper out of that box, a very important piece of paper. We lost it one year and then found it much to our delight because on this um, yellow notebook paper are the names of each of our children and then the ornaments that go with that name 
You see, what my wife has done over the years is every year she's purchased an ornament for each of our children. And so as she lines up those ornaments, it's not only um, a decoration moment, it's a family tradition moment. Then the kids get to go and take their individual ornament one at a time and uh, in birth order and then place the... Um, we have very specific rules about this for some very specific reasons that I won't get into. But anyway, so we, we, we put the ornaments on the tree... And as the kids are putting the ornaments on the tree, something happens. It's no longer about the ornament. Instead, it's like, oh, mom, I remember when you gave me this ornament. I was like six years old. Look, the giraffe, the head still falls off, you know, and it's, you know, look at this. Oh, here's the little soccer ball. Here's the guitar. And and, and what happens is the, the ornament moment isn't about the ornament anymore. It's actually about the memories. There's one ornament that's always a little hard for us to put up. In 2004, Christmas, someone graciously gave us an ornament with the name Sylvia on it. She's our daughter who in 2004 passed away a few days before birth. And I remember the first year at Christmas that we put that ornament on the tree. Whew, that's a hard moment. And over years, it's gotten easier, but there's still a little bit of a quiet, somber moment as we put her little ornament on the tree, our just little memorial to say, hey, we, we haven't forgotten Those ornaments have become part of our family tradition and not just the ornaments themselves, but all the memories connected behind them. And that's really what good family traditions do. They they cause you to take a pause from your celebrations and invite you to think back, to remember, and even to begin to think a little bit about what next year is going to be like. So good family traditions do that. They, they cause you to remember and also to anticipate. We're entering into a season called Advent. And Advent is much like that family tradition. It, it invites us to pause and to reconnect with our past, to remember. But also it's a season to anticipate in the future. So Advent has a dual purpose, and over the next five weeks, we're going to be joining millions of other Christians around the world celebrating um, this movement, this journey towards Christmas as we remember, but also as we anticipate. So the first coming, the Advent of Christ as a baby, is a celebration not only of his entry into the world, but also a reminder that this same child is coming again, that there's a second Advent that we are waiting for. And longing for. In the, in the late 1700s, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn. The hymn was specifically written for a hymn book called the Hymn Book of the Nativity of Our Lord, put together by his brother John Wesley. In fact, we sang it this morning, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and we're going to use this hymn as an Advent prayer and the outline for our journey together in Advent over the next five weeks. So the text goes, Come thou long expected Jesus. That's what we're talking about today. And we're going to use Galatians 4 to look at that theme. Then next week, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation. Notice the looking back. Hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. The second stanza takes the, the text and drives it into a more um, uh, anticipatory element or maybe even a more personal element. Here's how it goes. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born, here it is, to reign in us forever now. 
Thy gracious kingdom bring. By Thy own eternal Spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By Thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to Thy glorious throne. So you can see how... Charles Wesley in this hymn does something that's very connected to Advent. He, he not only looks back and remembers Israel's hope and consolation, but there's a prayer there, reign in our hearts now. Even the sense of, of do this Christ in us by thine own sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne, an anticipation of something that's in the future. So Advent has a dual purpose to it, both to remember and to anticipate. And the reason why I want to drill into some things from Galatians 4 today is this, that in the midst of all the busyness, all of the activity, all of the celebration, all of which is good, I want to remind you that this season has some very important things connected to it that are central to our relationship with Christ. And frankly, it's are really, really important to remember, not only because of the doctrinal truths behind them, but also because of the practical implications. I mean, that's really important if Thanksgiving for your family was a little awkward or uncomfortable or just downright strange. And you think, we just did Thanksgiving, and now we've got to be with these people again in Christmas, right? Maybe you drove away from someone's home and you're like, whoo, that was one hour too long, right? It was all going well until Uncle Sam opened his mouth and flush. It just went all downhill from there. Or maybe you, you, you enter into a home and it's just, it's just not the same. Or maybe you're the only follower of Jesus and you feel like an alien in the midst of your own people. Or, or maybe everything's great with your family and that's great. I'm just telling you, it won't always be that way. And holiday seasons tend to surface um, significant levels of dysfunction, challenges, um, hard issues. And so I want to remind you what Advent is all about and also be able to dial into some of the things that we find in Galatians 4 because I think that this text is incredibly helpful. So what I want to do is there's four truths in Galatians 4 and I want to connect them to, to Advent and help you see the significance of this passage. Galatians 4, particularly verses 4 and 5, that's the text that we'll be mostly looking at today, is arguably one of the richest texts in the book of Galatians, perhaps even the entire New Testament. Because what Paul does in two verses is he provides a remarkable summary for the entire Christian faith. In other words, if if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul summarizes in these two verses the essence of what you believe. And for that matter, and listen to this carefully, he summarizes the essence of what you live for. Galatians 4, 4 4-5 will walk with you through this holiday season and and beyond. Galatians 4, 4 4-5 help you to know how to live in the midst of a a world that's broken and and disappointing. Timothy George in his commentary on Galatians says that this text is one of the most compressed and highly charged passages in the entire letter because it presents the objective basis the Christological and soteriological foundation for the doctrine of justification by faith. So the book of Galatians in total is about this reality that people are saved not by their works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the argument that Paul is making. And then in Galatians 4, he talks about the advent of Jesus Christ and he connects it to this really important aspect of what it means to walk by faith 
and not to live by works. Some scholars think that Galatians 4, uh, 1 to 7 is some, is modeled after an early church confession. The reason that they think that is because of its succinctness, its clarity, and its depth. So there's some incredible truths here. Let me show you four of them. Here's the first one. The first thing that we see is very clearly, Paul celebrates a sovereign plan. A plan that God has orchestrated. Look at verse 4. The very first phrase is really important. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, what we need to see is that first little phrase, but when the fullness of time had come. What Paul is identifying here is that the advent of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, was orchestrated, planned, implemented through the sovereign will of God. In other words, God was behind everything that happened with the first coming of Jesus. Now this phrase, fullness of time, some people take this to mean the way in which the culture and the world were well suited for the arrival of Jesus, such that Christianity could spread in the way that it did. And at one level, there's an aspect of truth to that. This was the time in history called the Pax Romana, a time when Rome, this vast, expansive empire, and as a result of their expansive rule, some 200 years of peace reigned, very few conflicts. There was a central language that people used in commerce. Travel was relatively easy, and cities were beginning to grow dramatically. And all of this set the scene for the expansion of Christianity. In fact, a well-known um, church historian, Kenneth Scott LaTourette, estimates that by the year 300 A.D., that one in ten people in the Roman world identified themselves as Christians. I mean, that's incredible. Christ dies around 33 A.D. or so, and by 300 A.D., one in ten people consider themselves to be a follower of Jesus. It's incredible. So some take that this fullness of time refers to the cultural and social frameworks that were established. And, and true, that was certainly the case when Christ comes in his first advent. But I think what's happening in this phrase, the fullness of time, there's something even more here. Something with, with deeper significance <clears throat> excuse me, than culture. Look at chapter 3 and verse 11. Chapter 3 and verse 11, we find the theme of the entire book of Galatians. It says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's the argument that Paul is attempting to make, that the righteous will live by faith. In chapter 4, Paul furthers that argument that the righteous will live by faith by comparing and contrasting a person's life prior to living by faith, comparing that to a child who would be considered an heir but could not receive the full benefits of his father's estate until a date that was set by his father. And so until the time that this child would eventually receive the full inheritance of the family's estate, that child would be under the tutelage of a guardian. 
And that guardian would control that child. And what Paul is saying is that child under that guardian was more like a slave than he was like a son. And Paul is comparing that guardian to the law and the inheritance to faith in Christ. And what he's trying to explain is, so how does the law and the gospel work together? And Paul says that essentially, you and I are like that child, the inheritors of a great estate. But as children, we are under the tutelage of a guardian, and that being the law, until such a time that the law no longer is over us, and a new law comes in, the law of faith, and suddenly then you become the heir of all things. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So the idea is you have this... You ever got a science infection before? Come, thou long-expected Jesus. The idea is that there's a son who is the inheritor of everything that the family possesses. But for a particular season, he is under the tutelage of the law. And the father sets a date in the future and says, at this point... My son will no longer be under the guardianship of these tutors, but instead will have the full rights and privileges as a son. And when it says that the father sets the date, I think that is the connection that Paul is making in verse 4 when he says, when the fullness of time had come. In other words, in the predetermined plan of God, God had set the time for the Son to come. There was nothing about the arrival of Jesus Christ that happened by accident. God knew exactly when to send Him. He knew exactly where to send Him. He knew exactly what He would face. And He also knew how everything would end. God even orchestrated, the Father even orchestrated the crucifixion of His own Son. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 tells us that God ordained the death of Jesus. So when it says, when the fullness of time had come, you need to know that that term is pregnant with significant theological meaning. It means that everything that happened in the life and the advent of Jesus was orchestrated by a sovereign plan, a plan that God was working. Now why is that important? It's important, first, because the first advent was something that was orchestrated by God. And as well, the second advent, when Jesus comes again, will be equally orchestrated by the sovereign plan of God. And as you and I live in the gap between the first advent and the second, it's important to remember that if God was in control in everything that we celebrate at Christmas, he certainly is in control of everything that we anticipate in the future. And that is really important when crises come, difficulties come your way, or when culture seems to be unraveling further and further apart. Who knows what's going to happen to our culture and our environment morally in 2014. 
And I want to encourage you that no matter what happens, we can rest knowing that the same God who was in control in the first advent is the same God who's in control in the second advent. He is still on his throne, and therefore there's a great opportunity for followers of Jesus to simply rest and know that if God, if you were in control then, you're certainly still in control now. Secondly, this is also really important for those of you who are in the middle of of a very difficult season that is only made worse by the holidays. 2013 may have delivered some hard providences in your life, and Thanksgiving and Christmas only serve to make those more evident. Maybe it's a a new health issue, or a relationship mess, or a death in the family. That's hard. You show up at Thanksgiving, used to be ten seats around the table, now there's nine. And it's just, it's just a cold reality that a person is gone. The loss of a job, some other painful reality in your life may cause you at times to wonder what I think everyone wonders a few times in their life. God, what in the world are you doing? And you know what he's doing? Do you know what he's doing? He's doing the same thing that he did in the first advent. God is working out his plan. And although you and I are not able to see all the workings of that plan, we can rest knowing that the same God who orchestrated the advent of Jesus, the same God who's going to orchestrate the second advent of Jesus, is the same God who is personally orchestrating all the events in your life, even though they don't always line up in our understanding of how life should work. There have been times in my lifetime when my wife has had to remind me, Mark, God has always taken care of us, and he will always take care of us. I need someone every once in a while to speak that truth to my heart. That's why I love Galatians 4. That's why, be, perhaps why you're here today, because some of you may have come today, and you need to hear the truth of this word that God is still in control. You may look at the events of your life. Thanksgiving may have been a mess. Christmas may seem like it's going to even be worse. Or there may be circumstances in your life that you just can't believe that you're having to deal with this. And Galatians 4 is an anchor that in the midst of those seasons, we could be reminded that, you know what? God knows what he is doing, and he's not out of control, even though sometimes it feels like life really is. When the fullness of time had come, There is a sovereign plan at work. Here's the second thing we find in Galatians 4. And that is that there is a a supernatural intervention. When the fullness of time had come, the text says, God sent forth His Son. God sent forth His Son. This, This, you could crystallize the gospel Crystallize the message of this church with that simple statement. God sent forth His Son. It means that the advent of Jesus was a supernatural intervention. 1 John 4, 9, and 10 says this, In this the love of God was made manifest, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a beautiful word. It means that God is satisfied with us. 
So the idea, according to 1 John, is that there are rebellious people, that's us, who don't love God. And God intervenes in their life and makes them acceptable to Him, even though they never would be acceptable to Him on their own. It means that God spiritually intervened in their lives. God rescues sinners. The fact that God sent His Son is more than just a fact. It is the basis of hope. It means that if you have a personal relationship with Christ, it means, listen to me, God rescued you. And not just rescued you from your sin, He rescued you from yourself. Part of the longing, I think, of of Advent, and part of this prayer, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, is if you've experienced this beautiful spiritual intervention, you long for that to happen in the lives of other people. In fact, it, it may even change how you, how you view some people you're going to hang out with over the holidays. Some people who you're like, yeah, they need an intervention, right? <laughs> it may help you to see them as they're sinners. What else are they going to do? They don't have the hope of the gospel. How else are they going to talk? They don't know the beauty of the glories of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So how else are they going to act? It may help you to have love and compassion with people that in another context you might not have that kind of love if it were that you could see them through the lens of Galatians 4, that God sent forth His Son. This was the hope of Israel. In Isaiah 9, the people of Israel were promised that there would be a child that would be born. This was a promised that the Messiah would come. Isaiah 9 says this, The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This was the hope of Israel that when Rome was oppressing Israel, the people longed for the day when Rome would get off their back and they could be their own people again. And they longed for the day when the Messiah would come. And yet Israel's hope of a political solution was only part of the Messiah's role. The ultimate solution was for their iniquities and their sins to be taken care of. Isaiah 53 says this, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So, what is Advent about in regards to this supernatural intervention? Advent is a reminder that the coming of the Christ child, his purpose in coming, was to intervene in hopeless, lost people. People who had no hope in and of themselves. And so Advent looks back and remembers that without the first coming of this child, there would have been no hope for me. And Advent also looks forward and says, Come, thou long-expectant Jesus. We need you to come and take away what's broken in our world, and we need you to restore things back to the way that it needs to be. It's the cry of Revelation 6, where the martyrs say, How long, O Lord? And yet it's also the hope expressed through one of my favorite hymns, 
written by Philip Bliss, that it is well with my soul. Philip Bliss says this, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. That's the second advent. The clouds be rolled back as the scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. And then he says this, even so it is well with my soul. So he, he stands here looking for that moment and says, and even so, as I'm waiting for the restoration of your glory and the renewal of the earth, it is well with my soul. So there's a, a spiritual intervention. Third, there's a personal connection. Central to the beauty of what we celebrate in Advent is the fact that Jesus entered our broken world and he entered that world as a helpless infant. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So we have two descriptions here. He's born of a woman, And he's born under the law. Both of these are directly tied to the humanity of Jesus. So he's born of a woman and born under the law. To be born of a woman is simply a way for the Bible to say that Jesus was born as a full human being. He's already established Jesus' divinity. God sent forth his son. And now he establishes his humanity. He's born of a woman. Meaning... That he didn't just look like a man, he became a man. And without sacrificing anything of his divinity, Jesus becomes human with all of the limitations associated with our limited humanity. He was tempted. He was tested. Think of this. He was tired. He was hungry. He cried. He was angry. Not sinfully. He was He was angered. He experienced the full cup of our humanity. This is so incredibly significant and I think helps us as we move into the Advent season to be reminded that what we celebrate is not just the coming of a child, but we celebrate the coming of our Savior who really, truly understands what it's like to be human. He stands at the tomb of Lazarus and weeps. He feels pain. He feels grief. He feels the emotion of sorrow that is so unusual when it comes to our human experience. An emotion like none other. He stands there and weeps knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is he weeping? Because what he sees is an evidence of a world that has gone off the tracks. He sees evidence of a world that has gone astray. A world marred by sin. Jesus understands what it's like to live in the world that we live in. And the result of this is that we are never alone. You may walk through life and wonder who in the world understands what I'm going through. And the Bible's answer to that is Jesus does. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
So it means that Jesus understands what it's like to live in the world that we live in. He understands what it's like to hurt. He understands what it's like to be tempted. He understands what it's like to to, to wrestle and to see the brokenness of the world. So why does that matter? It matters because when you come to him, Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It means that because you have a Savior who understands that He invites you to come to Him. Or He invites you to say, Come to me, Lord Jesus. You know what it's like to hurt. You know what it's like to be in pain. You know what it's like to to walk in a broken world. You know how broken this world is. You died for this world. So come, thou long expectant Jesus. I need your help and I need it right now. He understands that. And the Bible says that he's ready to give mercy and help to you in your time of need. So as we celebrate Advent, it's a reminder that this child who comes is a child who then grows into the Savior who truly understands. He's born of a woman. Secondly, he's born under the law. It means that Jesus lived under all of the requirements of the Old Testament law. He was circumcised the eighth day. He read the Torah. He prayed to his heavenly Father. He attended the synagogue. He faithfully fulfilled all the demands of the law. He obeyed perfectly while living under the same constraints and obligations that every human being has ever faced. He lived under the same rules, and yet he never sinned. Not once. He fully obeyed. That's, that's why when you read the Gospels and you see how he acts and how he interacts, it's just remarkable because you can see the way that he lives and you can ask yourself this question as it relates to your life. So what in the world would Jesus do if he lived in this home? What would he do if he had these kind of relatives? What would he do if he had these kind of challenges? So Seeing the baby in the manger, seeing this Advent season is is more than just seeing the child that comes. It's also seeing the identification of the Son of God with our infirmities and our challenges. Take your Bible, and I want you to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and verses 22 and 23. You need to have these verses underlined in your Bible or you're not spiritual. Um, <clears throat> let me rephrase that. That didn't sound right. Um, you need to have these verses underlined in your Bible or you won't be spiritual. Let me explain why. There, there are signature verses in, in the Bible that I go to often and this is one of them. It's, it's, it's underlined in my Bible. And the reason is um, because I've had to go here many times. Let me just tell you why. One of the beauties of and the privileges of being a pastor is that you get to work with people. One of the casualties of being a pastor is that you get to work with people. And we're, we're, a, we're a sinful lot, aren't we? And what happens is when words are your business, then people take your words and they quote them or misquote them. And say, well, you said, I didn't say that. Yes, you did didn't say that and or or they that when people are hurting they they sometimes take out that hurt on people they either love the most or they view as trying to love them the most and so they'll, they'll say things that are just unfair or unkind and if you're going to be in ministry if you're going to get in people's lives you have to know what it is to have the ministry of absorption that sometimes you just absorb 
the terrible things that people say. And that's just, that's just, that's why you have to be called to invest your lives in people. But what do you do when somebody reviles you? And there's like five things that you'd like to say back. Like, right then. How do you hold your tongue? Verse 22. First Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Here it comes. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Oh, this is such a great text. So hard to live, but such a great text. It means that when you're reviled, you don't revile in return. When you are experiencing suffering at the hands of somebody else, you don't threaten. When someone says, oh yeah, well you're like, and you're like, oh yeah, well you're like, or somebody is causing you to suffer and so you threaten them. How do you live that way? Well, the answer is, is that you do it in the same way that Jesus did. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now skip it back to verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. And here comes a great statement. Leaving you and what? Example. So that you might, what's the next word? Follow in his steps. This is why the advent of Jesus Christ is so important. Because Jesus walks among us, he lives among us, and the Bible says, and we are to follow his example. It means that we are to ask ourselves this question. So if Jesus were living in this home, if Jesus had to go over to Uncle Hal's next week, what would he do? If Jesus had to sit around this table what would he do? If Jesus had to deal with these issues, what would he do? What would Jesus do? Jesus was born of a woman. He was born under the law so that we would never have to wonder if he really understands. What's more, it means that we can cry out to him for help when we need it, that we could say, come thou long expected Jesus, come. And not just come in the future, But I mean, I need you to come in part right now. I need you to give me grace right now to know what to do, or better, what not to do. I need you great, I need to give you, I need you to give me grace to keep trusting the one who judges justly. So there's a personal connection. Here's the final thing. And that, there is a redemptive purpose. Back to Galatians chapter 4. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and here's the purpose, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There is a redemptive purpose. This is the reason why God has done all of this. And this is the reason why Advent is so special, because it reminds us of the coming of Christ but also the redemptive purpose of God. That word redeem, so filled with meaning. 
it means to purchase something out of something else. And in the context in Paul's day, in regards to the matter of slavery, the idea is that a slave goes up to the slave market and someone purchases that slave, but not only purchases them from one master to another, but purchases them in order to set them free. Can you imagine that you have been purchased and redeemed and then released? In Paul's case, the, the slavery here is not physical, it's spiritual. And for that matter, the price of our redemption was Christ becoming our curse. Listen to Galatians 3.13. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is an unbelievable statement. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse. Or in another part of the New Testament, it says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So when we, we enter into the season of Advent, you need to remember that this child is going to grow up and become the means by which God will be satisfied with you. And the way that God was satisfied with you was by pouring out all His dissatisfaction with you on the person of Christ. That He absorbed the wrath that you and I deserved. So Advent is a journey. A journey where we are reminded of the beauty of what redemption is. But there's even more. Not only is, is there redemption, but there's also adoption. He says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you're one of those folks who have been adopted, I mean, you're, you're, you're an adopted child, you need to know that what happened to you in your adoption is one of the most glorious, biblically-centered and redemptive illustrations of what God has done for you spiritually. To be adopted means that what isn't biologically true is now true from a family perspective, that regardless of your background, regardless of, of what family you've been born into, that now you are considered and you are a part of this family. You are as much a part of family as anybody else is, even though physically you're not part of the same gene pool. And what God did is he welcomed us into his own family despite the fact that we were not part of his family. So the image is not only that we have been redeemed, but that we have been redeemed and then also adopted. So you were a slave, you were set free, and now you were brought into God's family that, such that God says, now you are my child. Look at verse 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about that, that, that guardianship, that tutelage thing set by the Father. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer treated by, like a slave. But now you are treated as a son. And if you are a son, then an heir through God. This is who you are. It means that everything about you, in terms of your identity, has fundamentally changed. In Christ, you used to be a slave, but now you're a son. Everything about you now and everything about you in the future has been fundamentally altered because of the coming of Christ. 
So what do you celebrate in Advent? Oh my goodness. You celebrate that I am completely a different person today because of the coming of this child. This five weeks that we celebrate Advent is a reminder that everything about me, everything in my identity, and everything that I hope for in the future is all centered on this one person, this person called Jesus. He is my everything because without Him, I have nothing. But with Him, I have everything. So when you... Celebrate Advent, remember that it was this baby that brought you into God's family. And as you remember, as you live in the gap between the first coming and the second coming, I want to remind you that Jesus promised that he's going to return. One day there will be a day when there will be no more pain, no more conflict, no more death. And we live today in the interim between those two events. And it changes how we see even the struggles that we face today. Paul put it this way, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the hard stuff that you've got, it's going to be nothing compared to the beauty of what you're going to experience in Christ. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The reality is, the pain, the challenges, the hardships of this moment, they are real, they are significant, and they are deep, but they are not ultimate, and they are not without hope. Why? Because God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that we're under the law. Advent reminds us about these great and significant truths. Advent calls us to remember and anticipate and then to live in the gap between the first and second coming of Jesus, praying always, come, 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 thou long-expectant Jesus. I need your help today. When we close, there's going to be some people up here at the front, and some of you are here today, and God in His sovereign plan has you here because you need someone to pray over you today. Lord, help my brother or sister. Come, Lord Jesus, help them. Some of you are here, and the reason that you're here is because this Christmas season makes no sense to you because you've not experienced a personal relationship with Christ, and there'll be folks here who would love for today to be the day when you would acknowledge Christ as your Savior and make the connection between Christmas and your soul and see the beauty of what it is for Christ to have redeemed you and to have adopted you. For us to be able to pray over you, come, 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 Lord Jesus. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Father, we thank you that in your grace and in your spirit, there is help right now. We thank you that in the person and work of Jesus, there is the ability to know that the same Christ who came in the first advent will come again and who's also ready and willing to come in another way right now. Thank you for the presence of the Spirit. The text says that we have the Spirit by which we can cry out, Abba, Father, this personal 
word for you, God, Daddy, Father, we can ask for help, and so we plead for it today. So Lord, thank you for the reminder from Galatians 4 of the beauty of what Advent is. And help us to remember, and also help us to anticipate as we live in the gap, come thou long expected Jesus, come, oh come Jesus. We pray this in, in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to remind you that there'll be some folks up here afterwards who'd love to pray for you and bless you. And thanks for coming to the College Park. I love you. God bless you.